Last week we read and considered the last part of James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. In this short but powerful paragraph of scripture, we learned what it is that true wisdom, God's wisdom is, and what it looks like. And lest we mistake wisdom from above for earthly, sensual, and demonic wisdom, James gave us a picture of that as well. Counterfeit wisdom is distinguished by the fact that it always carries with it bitter envy and self-seeking. Because it is not true wisdom, men that rely on earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom will find themselves embroiled in every evil thing, and this is not an overstatement by James. We see it all around us today. In our governments, in our schools, in our universities, in our courts of law, in our policing organizations, and sadly even in our religious organizations. But God's wisdom, heavenly wisdom, is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. With this true wisdom, we will receive from the hand of the Lord every good thing as we sow the fruit of righteousness in a society in which we cultivate and make peace. The gospel can be heard and bring forth more good fruit of righteousness leading to everlasting life. These six verses are absolutely saturated in powerful, practical truth that will be life-transforming if we will allow it to penetrate our hearts. Today we're moving into chapter 4 of James, and we're going to read the first 10 verses. And so let's read in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. This is the word of God. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are faced with a very stern passage this morning. And we are grateful for every word. We thank you that by your spirit, you can use these words, as strong and as stern as they are, 
to move in our hearts and transform our lives. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to understand and apply these things. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to the truth here. We pray that no person in this room this morning or listening to this, wherever they are, would miss the truth that you have for us. We pray that every person would be impacted by the transforming power of your words this morning. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace to the humble. Where do wars and fights come from among you? What are reasons for strife in the Christian community? As James often does, he opens this part of his letter with a question. Where do wars and fights come from among you? When I consider this question posed by James, I would like to answer, and maybe I would have if I didn't have James to help me, that the reason I am in conflict at various times with others is that they are wrong, and I am right, and I need to guide them into the only reasonable point of view, which is mine, whatever methods I deem necessary. That's where fighting comes from. People disagree with me, and they need to stop it. I would like to think that I have taken the moral high ground, and once others finally see things from my point of view, they will see that I was right all along. Right, honey? About everything. That's where wars and fights come from among us. In my view, James, people keep disagreeing with me when I know I'm right. Well, James is going to put me in my place this morning in the next few verses. Now this is not to say that there are not legitimate reasons for disagreements, even in the church. I think, for example, of St. Martin Luther. I think he was justified in triggering the Protestant Reformation when he looked around the church of the day and saw all sorts of abuses of authority. But, for the most part, our petty disagreements are being addressed here by this passage. James uses two words here, wars and fights to describe what is taking place among men, and maybe even more specifically among Christian men and women. It's a little difficult to tell whether James is talking about mankind in general here, in this passage, or whether he is addressing a problem specifically among Jewish Christian believers. I would like to believe that James is addressing human nature in general, but I have the nagging suspicion that he was correcting his Christian brethren as well. He mentions wars, fights, lust, murder, coveting. He calls the people adulterers and adulteresses. I would really like to believe these were not Christians, but we must be fair to the text, regardless of how we would like to believe. I mentioned the two words James uses here, wars and fights, it seems to me, from looking at the context in which these words are used in other places of the New Testament, and in other ancient Greek documents, that wars refer more to groups of people in conflict with one another, whereas fights refer to individuals in conflict with one another. Sadly, we don't have to look too far, even in our own church, to see that some groups oppose other groups, and some individuals quarrel 
with other individuals, and James tells us why. James, as he has shown consistently in the first three chapters, has some very, very strong language describing the source and inspiration of these battles. Sometimes, honestly, I wish James would be more gentle with his words. But even I recognize that a hard truth is better than a soft lie, especially when it forces me to confront a dark reality in my own life with the light of God's grace. James talks about desires for pleasure. The source of wars and fights among Christians, or all men, for that matter, is always the same. There is some root of carnality. Notice that James isn't concerned here about who may be right and who may be wrong. His concern is with the source of the contention, and he is going to show that People filled with the Holy Spirit of God do not display bitter contention, even if they may be on the right side of the argument. Imagine that. You could be right and end up being behaving wrongly. Our desires for pleasure provoke contentions in our bodies, in our personal relationships, and even in our churches. We want things done our way. This word pleasure in verse 1 of chapter 4 comes from the Greek word hedone. And without going into too many details, we get our English word hedonism from it. And a hedonist is a person that sees the highest goal of living as seeking the maximum amount of pleasure and the minimum amount of pain. That's what a hedonist is. Our culture is saturated with hedonists. During the Apostle James' lifetime, there were two primary competing philosophies of life advocated by Greek philosophers. And these philosophies were surprisingly widespread in the first century. We read in the book of Acts how Paul encountered both these schools of philosophy in Athens as he was pre preaching the resurrection of Christ. These two schools were the Stoics and the Epicureans. The Epicureans were hedonists. They were pleasure seekers. They saw pleasure as the highest good of mankind. It grew out of an ancient atheism. And quite frankly, it's rearing its ugly head in our culture today. All you have to do is see any advertisement. As people reject the God of the Bible, it grows and grows. Unfortunately for the Epicureans, they learned the universal law of hedonism the hard way. That law says this, pleasure in excess inevitably leads to pain. They literally, and there were people like this, and there may still be people like this, they literally ate so much good, rich food that they couldn't keep it down. And once it came up, they'd go back to the table. They drank so much alcohol that they died of alcohol poisoning, they woke up regularly with raging hangovers, and they experienced high rates of liver failure. They engaged in unchecked carnal expression and received in their bodies the penalty of their error, which was due, is the way Paul describes it in Romans 1. Then the other school came along, the Stoics, 
and they mercilessly criticized the Epicureans for their foolishness. The Stoics believed that the correct day, way to deal with the passions was to suppress them until they died. Their goal was to become completely non-emotional, non-passionate. They thought the only way to deal with pain that comes with pleasure is to become a person completely without passion. Their approach would be akin to using a guillotine to cure a headache. The cure would work, but the cost was high. Interestingly, in our passage today, James is using some of the exact arguments written in other places by the Stoics to show the utter folly of pursuit of pleasure as your primary goal in life. There's nothing else in any ancient Jewish literature that touches on this subject like James does here. But James parts company with the Stoics on the remedy for pleasure. He says, seeking pleasure in your highest good is not a way to live, but the cure is not suppression. Christianity is far more robust than Stoicism. James knew that Jesus Christ said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Our emotions and passions have been given to us by God. Sin, though, has skewed our emotions and our passions and so that in our search for pleasure, we have looked in all the wrong places. But in Christ, as we pursue the kingdom of God and the righteousness of Christ, our pursuits lead to glorious and clean fulfillment like nothing else can. James says, you've tried everything, yet you do not have. You lust and you do not have, James tells us. He goes on to say, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. Once again, I believe James reflects on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus also used the word murder to express more than the actual taking of human life, but also an inward condition of the heart shown outwardly by anger. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and the first part of 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Like the sins of adultery and covetousness, murder is a sin that takes root in the heart before it ever produces filth on the hands. And here lies the tragic irony of the life lived after worldly and fleshly desires. It never reaches its goal. I don't know if there's anything more important I can say to the young people in here this morning. There probably are, but at this moment I don't think, I can't think of any. And it's not for a lack of effort. C.H. Spurgeon once preached, if the lusters fail, it's not because they did not set to work to gain their ends, for according to their nature, they use the most practical means within their reach and use them eagerly, too. It's not that they don't have for lack of trying. They try very, 
very hard. I'm going to speak from my own experience of life for the next couple of minutes here. I'm suspicious that if I have, I have experienced some of these things, that some of you will have as well. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you thought, if I only had that car, I would be happy. Then I would be fulfilled. If I only had that job, I would be happy. That's the job I want, not the one I have. That job that that guy has. If I only had that house that's bigger than my house. If I only took that vacation. If I only had that color of hair. If I only had that horse. If I had that truck. If I had that career. If I only had that person. I would finally be happy. Some of you got what you wanted, as did I. And for one fleeting moment, you thought you had finally reached fulfillment. The, the fulfillment you had been striving for. And then it was gone, wasn't it? It was gone. The novelty wore off, and you found yourself dissatisfied and unfulfilled again, didn't you? Don't lie to me, yes you did. And then you looked around for something else that would finally make you happy. Lo and behold, there it was. And you thought to yourself, if I only had that thing, I would be happy. And you continued the cycle, the endless cycle. At one point, will we rationally understand the diabolical foolishness of living life after the lusts of the world and our animal appetites. You are tempted to, to, to fulfill a desire because you think or you hope that it may be satisfied, but I've got news for you, and I can, you can take this to the bank, it's absolutely sure. And you may think that I'm wrong because you're younger than me and I haven't got the insight that you have into living your life, but here it is. It will never be satisfied. You, you look for satisfaction in the world, it will never be satisfied, ever. Why not accept your lack of such material satisfaction now, instead of after much painful and harmful sin, the sin of covetousness. Until you make Jesus Christ the beginning and the end, the primary focus of all your life, you will have a lingering sense of emptiness and longing. I guarantee it beyond the shadow of a doubt. Happiness and fulfillment will always seem like it is just barely out of your grasp until you embrace the moment-by-moment -moment worship of the one true God through Jesus Christ as the reason for which you were created. St. Augustine said it best in his prayer, 
Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You do not have because you do not ask. At this point, some of you are tempted to think, ah, I don't have to covet and murder to get what I want to serve my desires and pleasure. I can just ask God for these things, and he will give them to me. I hope you instantly see the problem in that kind of thinking. James does. James says that asking for things to serve our worldly pleasures is asking amiss, or asking wrongly. And that word amiss comes from the same word as ill or sick. Um, out of alignment, unwholesome. The God of heaven is not some genie in a bottle that swoops down to grant you three wishes. He is the God of all creation, who knows the end from the beginning. He sees the good that can come when we align our desires with his, and he sees the disaster that would result if we, in our extremely limited capacity, always got what we asked for in order to serve our comfort in this life. If we really break it down, James, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us this. Listen carefully. As we increasingly align our desires with the will of God, we will increasingly see our prayers answered. I want you to think about that for a moment. As we increasingly align our desires with the will of God, we will increasingly see our prayers answered. Uh, it's, it's so important, that thought that James gives us there. Once again, there is no doubt that James is reflecting on the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Sadly, I think that we, as God's children, sometimes when we need bread, we ask him for a stone. When we need a fish, we ask him for a serpent. But as we align our thinking with God's heart, we can begin to ask, seek, and knock for that which is actually good, good for his kingdom and good for us. Don't let this cause you to cease praying. I'll quote C.H. Spurgeon once again. It's a rather lengthy, lengthy quote, uh, but it, I, I didn't know where to stop it. It was so appropriate. Quote, remember this text. Jehovah says to his own son, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. 
If the royal and divine Son of God cannot be exempted from the rule of asking that he may have, you and I cannot expect the rule to be relaxed in our favor. Why should it be? If you may have everything by asking, and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital your prayer is, and I beseech you to abound in it. Do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking man. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer." Unquote. So we'll move into verses 4 and 5 now. Where do your loyalties lie? Starts out, verse 4, rather harshly. Adulterers and adulteresses. A majority of Bible scholars believe that the original manuscripts read only adulteresses. Uh, looks like the word adulterers was an add-on later. And that would make perfect sense of this passage because James uh, is really in these next four or five verses writing very much in the style of Old Testament prophetic literature. The style of this rebuke is so similar to the Old Testament prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord to idolatrous Jews. Here, the prophet James is speaking to idolatrous Christians that want to have one foot in the world and the other in Christ's kingdom. God spoke this way in the Old Testament when his people were attracted to some form of idolatry. Particularly, he spoke this way through the prophet Ezekiel, but also through others like Hosea, whom God asked to take an adulterous wife as a picture of the Lord's relationship with unfaithful Israel. As James correctly saw here, covetousness is idolatry. Paul said the same thing in Colossians 3.5. And friendship with the world is enmity with God. This is not to say, of course, that you should not develop friendships with people that are not believers. It just means to say that you stay true to the kingdom of Christ over and against the world's systems and ideologies as you live the love of Christ. Some will hate you for it and separate themselves from you. Others may be drawn by the hope and joy you have in the Savior as you live an uncompromised life in submission to God and His commands. The Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. This verse, verse 5, is notoriously difficult to translate. Uh, I read it in at least 20 different Bible translations. It's just very, very difficult to to get the English sense. So I'm not going to dwell on it for too long, but looking at the context and reading F.B. Meyer's commentary, who is one of the most faithful Bible scholars of our age, I believe, I think I can say this much at least. God is jealous over his bride. Sometimes jealousy is an appropriate reaction. If one spouse is unfaithful, the other has every right to feel jealous and to try to restore that relationship. If there were no feeling of jealousy due to this most 
terrible of betrayals, I would say something is very wrong with that relationship. Christian, do not betray by entertaining covetousness and pride the God who has saved you through Christ. Very possibly, betrayal is the most vile thing one person can do to another. When you betray someone, you rob them of their past because they doubt your sincerity in everything you've done together. You rob them of the present because nothing is as it seemed. You rob them of the future because all the stability they looked forward to in your relationship in the years to come has vanished. To betray your Savior is one of the vilest of sins. So what's God's solution? Verses 6 through 10. He gives more grace. I thought about that phrase a lot. He gives more grace. Why doesn't it just say, but he gives grace? No, it says, he gives more grace. More than what? More and more and more and more. God doesn't come to the point where he says, you know what? I've run out of grace for you. I've given you more grace. And do you know what? The well has run dry. You've, you've gone too far this time. There is just nothing I can offer. I've given you all the grace. This verse says God gives more grace. He continues. He doesn't run out. There's nothing that you have done that, have, that has exhausted the unmerited favor of God in Christ. The same Holy Spirit convicting us of our betrayal will also grant us the grace to serve God as we should. God's grace stands in opposition against everything James has told us about ourselves so far in chapter 4. God's grace is the light shining in the darkness of wars, fights, desires, pleasure, lust, murder, covetousness, adulteries, and enmity with God. I think if any one of us had any true notion of the ocean of God's grace, we would be overwhelmed with thanksgiving. Simply contrast your poverty without Christ with your riches in Him, and you will get a glimmer of God's grace, God's unmerited favor toward you. And once we understand this, each one of us should be asking, how do we get this grace? How do we get more of this grace? I want to experience more of God's grace in my life. Well, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's your answer. Plain and simple. Grace and pride cannot coexist in your life. God resists the proud. He stands in battle array against your pride and those that live in pride. And he will be victorious in this life and the next. Pride's demand is simple in your life. Replace God with me as the most important being in the universe. That's all pride wants. Take 
gone off the throne and put yourself there, your ego there instead. Simple request. Humility, on the other hand, recognizes God's position as absolutely supreme and submits to him and his word as the final authority. Humility recognizes that there is an infinite gulf between a holy God and ourselves as sinners. But God's grace bridges the gulf, and that bridge of grace is shaped like a cross. The cross of Christ, where God poured out his grace on the whole world. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can we do to wash away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. There's always more grace. Therefore, submit to God. In light of the grace offered to the humble, there is only one reasonable service to perform. Submit to God. Order yourself under God. That's what it means to submit. Order yourself under God and surrender to Christ as the conquering king. I've got news for every person in this room. You will submit to God one day. Either you will humbly choose to submit to God and in this life and receive adoption and sonship in his eternal kingdom by his eternal grace, or you will submit to God in the next life with the foot of Christ on your neck as he breaks your pride by making you his footstool. Each one of us has this choice this morning. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To resist does not mean to cower in fear or hide. The word resist means to stand against. We are to bravely stand against the enemy of our souls. Resistance, pardon me, resistance always begins with submitting to God and continues by humbly standing in his grace as we repeatedly, listen to this, choose to do what is right. As Christians, we do not comply 
with the earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom we talked about last week. We just don't. We firmly stand on the Word of God and live by the principles of His kingdom. When we do not resist the influence of abortion, euthanasia, homosexual practice in all its aberrant forms, socialism, deceit, corruption, and every other evil thing, the devil has no reason to flee from us. It is incumbent that we as believers resist, stand against the ungodly influences in our families, in our churches, and in our societies by first submitting to God and then resisting the devil. If Christians don't do it, I ask you, who will? Can you think of anyone? No. There's an ancient Christian document written in the late, late first or early second century called The Shepherd of Hermas, in which the author, whose name is apparently Hermas, writes, the devil can wrestle against the Christian, but he cannot pin him. You're in a position of victory already. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You'll notice every phrase in these last few verses are familiar to us, aren't they? They, they, reach, they reach us on a level that nothing else does. This passage is so powerful. This here, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, is an invitation and a promise. What does it mean to draw near to God? Well, here are a few ways each of us ought to consider, at least. It might be different for individuals, but here are a few things that I just thought might be helpful to get started. Spend time in worship, praise, and prayer, particularly when you're on your own. Read, study, and memorize his word. Meditate on who God is and what he is like. Find someone with a need that you are able to meet and meet it. Find something beautiful and enjoy it. There is something miraculous that has happened in today's text. In so many ways, the book of James reads like an Old Testament wisdom book. But in the Old Testament, God frequently told his prophets and others to stay back Keep their distance, remain afar off, including Moses, lest they die. But here, under the new covenant, God says to the sinner, Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. The ground between God and the sinner has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, and we can approach the throne of grace on the basis of that blood. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. As we draw near to God, we will be convicted of our sin. In Christ, we are not only to have our hearts cleansed, but our hands as well. We are to be purified on the inside so that our interactions in this world 
can be pure as well. James uses the same word here, double-minded, that he used way back in chapter 1, if you remember, to describe the man who lacks wisdom. These are the only two times this word is used in the entire New Testament. James uses it twice. The remainder of today's passage sounds strikingly, like I've mentioned before, like an Old Testament prophet imploring the people of God to repent and humbly return to him. James uses terms like lament and mourn and weep to describe the anguish of repentance. Humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. If we try to elevate ourselves in the sight of the Lord, he will humble us. If we humble ourselves in his sight, he will lift us up. Grace always lifts up. Perhaps you are here this morning and you know that you have been brought low by everything that's going on in our world today, as have I. You are helpless before the onslaught of darkness in this world, and you need the grace of God. James tells us exactly how to be flooded with that grace. Look to the cross of Christ, the bridge of grace. Humble yourself. Resist the devil. Cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Lay a repentant heart before the God of all grace, and he will lift you up. His grace is sufficient to carry you through even times such as these. It has been 2,000 years since the cross, and Christ has never once abandoned his people, and he's not going to start today. Let's pray today. Father in heaven, we have reflected a great deal on your grace this morning. And just the contemplation of your favor toward us, not because of anything that we are or have done, but simply because of Jesus. Our, our, our hearts swell, not with pride, but with humility and thankfulness. Father, if there's nothing else, those of us maybe that are a little older take from today's message. I pray that you would instill in us an understanding of what it means to be flooded with the grace of God in Christ every moment of every day. For the younger people, most of them sitting there in that back corner, if there's nothing else they take from this message, I pray that it would be that there is absolutely nothing in this world that will ever satisfy that longing that every one of them is experiencing day by day. And that they will never experience that fulfillment until they submit everything into the pierced hands of Jesus Christ. And from there, walk in humble obedience to his word. I pray that you would remind them of that every moment of every day. 
until they too are walking in this overwhelming grace of Christ. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can be here together. It is in your name and your name alone that we are truly grateful. We truly have thankfulness that you have done this thing. We pray that you would continue to uphold your people all across this land that is slipping so quickly away from the truths of Scripture. We ask that we would be those that submit to God and resist the devil and do so in courage so that we can be a light in this dark place. Pray for our leaders that you would penetrate the dark minds of those that do not know you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you again for all your goodness to us. Help us to be thankful, truly thankful, in return to you for all of your riches that you bestow on us in the heavens. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.